Off the ball. With 10-year-old Amber playing football back in Donegal, believe this moment. No, because she'd probably still be doing the community games. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. Now you're welcome along Sunday Papers. Great to have you with us. I'll run you through the front pages to kick things off. Sunday Independent. Munster bite back is the headline. So uh, relief from Munster in many ways. Uh, Reds heading in right direction at long last is the uh, front page in the Sunday Independent. And beneath that, Jurgen Klopp talking ahead of this afternoon's game against Man City. Pep is the best manager in the world, says uh, Jurgen Klopp. And uh, it was put to him in the press conference ahead of this game that Guardiola still hasn't... uh, Confirmed if he's signing a contract extension at Man City and Klopp said he hoped uh, Pep would take a four-year sabbatical. So uh, back page of the Mail on Sunday. Again, it's Munster. That's more like it is the headline. So Munster with a bonus point win yesterday. Youngsters show the way as fired up Munster kickstart their season with win over Bulls. And then uh, back page of the Mail as well. Shane McGrath here. So Wexford crackdown as mentors get 96-week bans. So uh, I think this has been coming, really. Wexford GA have hit a club mentor with a 96-week ban following alleged assault an alleged assault on uh, match officials in the uh, week the GA vowed to stamp down on the issue. Uh, this was a referee and one of his umpires allegedly assaulted following a junior match last month. And so the maximum ban is 96 weeks. The club uh, involved also fined €1,000. And there was a separate incident in Wexford as well where a mentor from another club also received... <coughs> a 96-week ban for an alleged assault on a referee, this time following a junior hurling match. And there's going to be, apparently, Respect the Referee Day across the island uh, next week in GEA. We have uh, Sun then, again, looking ahead to Liverpool-Man City. Guardiola in uh, title race rap. He says, come off at Klopp. So Guardiola saying um, Klopp might be... Uh, Claiming publicly the Premier League title race is done and dusted, he said Guardiola's response is, well, maybe if there was 10 games to go, but this early in the season, he's not quite buying it. We have the mirror then. It's uh, Guardiola and Pep again. And it's uh, this time Klopp talking about how special Guardiola is. Best manager in the world. It's really special what he's doing at Man City. Uh, Dutch Courage is the Sunday World. And this is uh, Haaland and Van Dijk again. It's all really coming from the press conferences of the two uh, managers, so um, Klopp making the point that it's not like it's Van Dijk versus Haaland. He said there will be another centre half on the pitch, and Haaland will probably choose that option. He also says if Haaland was alone on the pitch, you'd still have to defend him. He's a monster. And then uh, double delight the observer. This is England uh, beating Samoa in the uh, Rugby League World Cup, uh, which is underway. 60 nil against there are 60 points to six. Uh, yesterday got the front page of The Observer. Very happy to say, Brendan O'Brien of the Irish Examiner here in the studio. Great to have you back in. And after much persuasion over what feels like the last two years, Owen Redden has graced us uh, with his presence, uh, Irish international, over 100 appearances for Wasps and Leinster, of course, won a Premiership title and European Cup with Wasps, more Highland Cups and Celtic Leagues with Leinster. A sneakily amazing career, actually. It's only when you see it all written down, it's pretty impressive. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for coming in. Lean into that microphone for us, if sure, you can. Yeah. Just a touch. Uh, the other front page, I must have uh, mislaid it because it was the most interesting front page. Did I give it to you? you no, it to me? you did not. Apologies. No. <laughs> uh, so uh, the Sunday Times front page, I must have left it aside because I was reading it again. Uh, it's uh, an interesting one. We look like a pub team. 
So this is uh, the FAI and it's the chairman, Roy Barrett, who has written a letter by email to his fellow board members for what he calls barroom rancour aimed at manager Stephen Kenny, which he says is going down badly with sponsors and the government. So uh, Paul Rowan here with the story. Uh, He calls this uh, Roy Barrett letter an extraordinary letter and it was sent to the board after the win against Armenia, after that 3-2 win. So in this email, Barrett quotes a number of articles in newspapers that have suggested board members, FAI board members, have been briefing journalists and he says, we look like a pub team. So the Sunday Times have seen this email, which, by the way, the Sunday Times say has caused some antagonism amongst the board members. Uh, Some close to the board say they no longer wanted nodding dogs at the top of the association. So that's a dig back at Roy Barrett. But um, the source points out that there was a recent gathering of football journalists, uh, some politicians and some senior FAI figures. I don't know what the gathering was, obviously some private gathering of some kind. And there were some uh, board members there, some senior members of the executive as well. Nobody is named who was there. But uh, Barrett, surprised at the number of leaks coming out of the association since he took the reins nearly three years ago. So four days after the Armenia game, he sends this email and he says that the Irish Independent today writes that influential FAI figures with reservations about Stephen Kenny are more strident in bar rooms than in boardrooms. He says the Daily Mail reports there is, quote, growing anxiety in the FAI. John Fallon, Irish examiner, also alluded to growing concerns on the board regarding the performance of the team and Stephen. So what Barrett says is to his board, this is getting tiresome. It reflects poorly on the board. Will those members who believe it's OK to express opinions to journalists on Stephen or any other FAI staff member's performance, please desist from doing this. You're letting everybody else on the board down and it's just embarrassing at this point. We look like a pub team. That is really going to go down well with sponsors and governments. Regards, Roy. Uh, he signs off the email. Have a great day. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. So that's quite something, isn't it? It is, it is. And my limited understanding of like corporate governance and stuff like that is that there should be a kind of a cabinet confidentiality that you can have, you know, the strident views within, within the room, um, but that, you know, there's collective responsibility and that the decision that comes is a decision that's aired. There should be one person speaking on behalf of the board and all that kind of stuff. So, But th- this is nothing new in terms of the FAI. I mean, for donkey's years, it's been a leaky sieve with um, you know different people's agendas coming out in different ways. And I can understand Roy Barrett's um, you know, just disgust with, with, with all this kind of stuff. You can't be having it. And, and I think the really interesting line in it is that people, if people are being more strident in, in bar rooms than boardrooms, you know, why aren't you more strident in the boardroom? Or may, maybe they just feel that they're, they're not being listened to. But it comes back to, the, at the end of the day, that, you know, if the majority of the decision is, if people in power have come to a decision that uh, Stephen Kenny should be given the next European Championships or given the next contract or whatever, you go with that. Yeah. And it doesn't do them any good to have this kind of stuff coming out in the papers. Yeah. I mean, this is a Republic of Ireland team, <laughs> men's team still without a short sponsor. You know, they can't be having this. And the interesting thing for me is actually what's not said. Like, how... Even Roy hasn't mentioned the players, right? Like, or what drips out of a a board does to undermine a manager, undermine what he's trying to do. They haven't had like an amazing, you know, string of results that allows them to actually ignore what's been stuff been said in the media. Or so any player there who's having any bit of an issue with a teammate or the way they, the way they're doing things, these kind of, you know, if people are undermining 
the coach in the background, it just widens all those cracks and actually makes it very hard, um, especially with the task they have ahead of them now, right? Um, obviously, with, with the with the draw they're after getting. So um, cleaning that up is, is key for him actually being able to do his job properly as a manager. It does, though, hint at a major dysfunction at board level. So... The other obvious point to make here is Roy Barrett has written a letter saying, can we please stop with the leaks and stop with the talking? Look what's on the front page of the Sunday Times. <laughs> exactly. Someone's going to like, so that, that email has gone straight to the Sunday Times. Exactly. I mean, you just can't be having that. That's, it looks so bad for an organisation. How, how long down the road are we from the, the John Delaney era still trying to get things going in the right direction, trying to get this sponsor, which they so badly need. They need every good... Um, PR they can get and this just this is going to do nothing I mean Jonathan Hill the, the, the new CEO is coming in for some criticism at the failure to, to get this major sponsor that they need he was brought in in large part I believe for his expertise on that side with the FA uh, back in the years and uh, you would have to ask I mean football in this country is the biggest sporting entity we will see every time to get to a major tournament what can happen and time is taking on this needs to be sorted and this sort of thing just isn't helping in that, in that way. No, it sure isn't. And it, like, it feeds into that general conversation about Stephen Kenny, which you know is full of different opinions. Mm-hmm. There's a spectrum and obviously that's evident at board level as well. But I mean, when it's fairly obvious he's going to be the man in charge mm-hmm. for the European qualification campaign next year, you're obviously better off as a board member to hold your reservation, certainly when you're chatting with journalists because it, you know, it prompts this flurry of reports. And as you said, own players will pick up on that and mm-hmm. No manager wants to feel like his uh, authority has been undermined at any level, certainly not board level. Absolutely, yeah. I think um, you can't get the player. Like they're probably at a time when they really need a united front more than ever, right? For like, if, if he's had a, an up and down set of results, you know, the team are just coming around, there's a bit of positivity building. Like, it really, it's a time for unity where, where every player knows that I need to buy into what Kenny is saying or I'm out, mm. you know. Um, and hopefully um, they can clean that up. It, on the one hand, it's a pretty, you know, it's not an easy fix, but it's a really, like, it's an obvious problem, right? Like you've just pointed out, it's in the press. Yeah. To have that size of a problem that you could solve, in some ways, is an opportunity, right? If that's there and you can get rid of it, great. But but cleaning up a lot of leaks in one go is, doesn't seem like it's going to be an easy task. No. Well, it's front page news in the uh, Sunday Times. So we'll jump around a bit. I'm going to have to run outside of some station find my Sunday <laughs> Times. I'm not sure where it is. Arthur out there, I think, is uh, having a look for it, hopefully. So uh, the Mail on Sunday, there's an interview here which I think caught everybody. It's probably the best interview in the, in the pages yeah. uh, this morning by a bit of a distance. Yeah. So it's Dylan Hartley. Uh, so he's, he's pictured there in uh, Dubai and the uh, big headline is I get dizzy spells, drop things, stutter but I can't spend all my time thinking I've got dementia 36. So it's not uh, ostensibly just an interview about uh, dementia or any potential issues from playing the game. It's about his new life now and he's, he's kind of fascinating on that. So it's Nick Simon who's in Dubai. So Dylan Hartley has now moved to Dubai with his family and they meet for uh, morning coffee in the 37 degree He's smart, casual, ahead of an afternoon of client meetings. We don't at this stage in the piece know what the client meetings are. Uh, Dylan Hartley almost uh, blends in. He is slimmer now with an expensive new hairline. It's a hell of a line just to drop in, isn't it? <laughs> Dylan Hartley reading this going, what? After? <laughs> uh, <laughs> only his noticeable uh, limp as he drags his right leg sets him apart from the stylish clientele as they glide between the exotic fruits and the Arabian buffet. And then you've uh, straight talking Hartley. My hip is effed. 
he says, taking a seat, ordering a black Americano. I've got arthritis, so I'm getting a replacement. It's pretty debilitating. I can't walk properly. I don't sleep well. Can't tie my shoelaces. Struggle to play with my kids. Struggle to sit in the toilet. Not that you need to hear about that at breakfast, he starts. So I think right away you know that Hartley's going to be straight talking, Mm. entertaining. And he continues on in that vein. Uh, He politely declines the food, says the piece. Uh, These days Hartley only eats between the hours of midday and 6pm. He's uh, opting for a healthier uh, lifestyle. Pub lunches in rural North Hampshire are a thing of the past. So he says, seven weeks since we moved out here, me, my wife, our two kids, uh, we wanted change. We wanted to get out of our comfort zone in Northampton. And so he says, business-wise, I jumped. I thought this was interesting before I was pushed. Mm-hmm. He says, how I was working in the UK was almost like a dirty drug. Do a bit of corporate, bit of media. It was always there. There was enough to keep you going and it was easy, but for me it wasn't a sustainable career choice. I enjoy doing a bit, but it's just a hobby now to stay connected with rugby and earn at the same time. I needed to take on the real world and that led me here working for Access Hire. So he's working for that company. It's like construction and oil and gas. And he also um, does some coaching for them as well. He coaches rugby teams on uh, Tuesday and Thursday. So it's kind of best of both worlds for him. And so he says, uh, talks of retirement been very difficult. He retired, second child, lockdown started, renovating my house, paying builders' bills. My salary just stopped. I had a payout agreed and signed with Northampton, but because of COVID, they said they couldn't pay it. So we settled on 50% of what we'd agreed. I had no income and I was like every other self-employed person at home during the pandemic. And he made, I think, a very uh, self-aware point as well. He refers to his post-rugby life as a dirty drug again. I wanted to get away from that dirty drug, cut ties from rugby in a way, and not get stuck in that downward cycle of being an irrelevant sportsman. Let's be honest, unless you're Martin Johnson or Johnny Wilkinson, you have a couple of years and then your value drops. When Jamie George retires and they need a hooker for TV, (coughs) I'm not the guy they'll be calling. I suspect there's a lot of former uh, players, former rugby players, who would read those kind of lines and think, yeah, I mean, I've had similar thoughts myself. Yeah, and I think you know the, the the like first of all, I've I've played against him and met him lots of times. And this this you know to see him this honest is great. Okay, I hadn't had that experience with him before, um, and maybe just because I hadn't spent enough time with him. But I um, just the honesty is great. But also, he's a former England captain, mm. right? Um, so to say this is post or this is what a retirement looks like is even generous right because you know he's had media opportunities in corporates that are you know far above what what most players retiring will have but it's still really challenging I mean that's clear how honest he is and how tough it's been for him Um, and I think it's one of the best pieces I've read or that's explained probably the conversations I'd have with people on a one-on-one you know who've retired it probably just sums it up really, really well. There's no, there's no rubbish in it. It's, no. it's just dead straight. It's, it's as it is, um, and he captures. He really captures the piece around, you know, how much media should you do when you finish? Like it's really interesting, right? How, like, you know, are you actually, you know, how how long will it actually keep you happy for? Um, is it helping you? Is it actually helping you uh, transition? Is it hurting your transition? Um, it's interesting to read. Uh, I thought it was very, very honest and, and a great point. Because he said he had just enough to keep going, enough mm. corporate work, enough media to mm. sort of keep his hand in. But mm. as he said himself, I'm just waiting for the next uh, high-profile hooker or England captain to retire and then suddenly I'm yesterday's man. And I would think a lot of players who get their initial burst of punditry and then slowly, they either do very well, 
but there's a sink or swim quality and the name recognition and the recency only gets them so yeah. far. And it's interesting as well because, like you say, Owen, he's the former England captain. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And if he's if he's looking at it in that stark terms, and you're thinking, what's it like further down the pyramid? And what I thought of when I was reading it was, um, hasn't Gary Neville spoken in the past about how his shelf life is going to be? Now, not because he thinks it's a shelf life, but because he just thinks recency is another issue as well. I mean, how relevant can he be 10 years after retiring yeah. or 15? He says, there will come a point when I will walk away from it. Now, I haven't heard him say that recently, so maybe he, he still loves it, but there is that point. Mm. Um, you know, the further you get away from the, from the game, I, I think Brian O'Driscoll has spoken about it as well, that you have to keep talking to people in the game and, you know, what's happening, you know, what's happening in training, what are the big trends in the game, stuff like that. So, you know, it is difficult. And your point, on is very interesting. Does that actually help or hinder you mm. when you finish the game? You know, it's basically, is it cold turkey or is it, mm. is, would cold turkey be better for you or, or do you kind of ease yourself out of it? And I suppose that's different from, for everybody really, isn't it? It is. And, and, and the things that jump up and down in front of you, like that are attracting you, are all going to be stuff you can yeah. do now. So it will be uh, media, TV, it will be rugby, right? It yeah. won't be you know, Dubai, right? It won't be a access list in Dubai, which he's yeah. obviously had to dig for, he's had to think about it and he's had to try and find his way into something else, which, you know, if he hadn't been England captain, would have probably had to face up that earlier because he wouldn't have survived, right, mm-hmm. with, without the corporates and the TV. Um, but I thought it was a very good article and, and you know, he, he does get into the, the concussion side of yeah. it as well, you know. I would have I would have gladly read the whole article about him after rugby and preferred to have read part two Dylan Hartley on concussion next week mm. that's how good the first third of it is I, yeah. it's a brilliant brilliant read and the, the second third is brilliant as well it is yeah we'll come to that in a second and I presume your sense of talking to players one on one on is, is that they're acutely aware that there'll be an initial burst of offers when they first retire and then it'll go very very quiet or do they do they almost think oh well maybe this is just what post life is going to be <sighs> it's like the, the kind of the the you know, the affirmation or the positivity will come from these opportunities, you know, like it'll be it'll be media driven, it'll be corporate driven. So you won't be told you're great at your new job, right? Because you're not great at your new job. So that's going to take a long time of work and toil like you had to do with the start of the rugby. But the yeah. easy win is the is, is people. So people don't notice it, um, would be what I'd say. I don't think they do. They're aware of it. But I, I'd say have been out of the game. You know, I used to say, oh, maybe 60, 70 perceived for life. At this stage, I would say I haven't met a single player who, who, who has retired who hasn't found it challenging. Yeah, of course. And that goes from captains of Ireland, mm-hmm. captains of England in the paper today, to people who had to retire at 21 with, with you know, a sudden injury. Yes. You, know. you went straight into the business world, didn't you? I did, yeah, yeah. And was that the plan for quite some time before retirement? Uh, it was on the cards, yeah. And and the last year were, was, was uh, you know, kind of, will I, won't I? Like, I had another year to go almost. Like, there was another year I could have played on. Right. Which meant the le- that the leaving bit was like, you know, I didn't... Instead of thinking, oh, someone's let me go, I, I had a distinct feeling of, have I let somebody down? Right, because I decided in June to not play in September. So, like... That does give you a different feeling when you're finishing because you you have a compassionate feeling as opposed to thinking you're you're someone's after doing a job on you. You know what I mean? Um, but then, you know, I think it's been it's been for me. There's a different phases like that. The I probably had a in what I was trying to do. I felt so far, kind of 
it's, it felt like such a, another mountain to climb as in how difficult it was going to be it gave me a similar actual motivation that I had with the rugby like, right. you know what I mean um, and as I do that longer and longer now like that's interesting how the rest of my life fits into to, to a week now right like you can't always be around winning, winning you know as it was European Cup or you know so it's, it's uh, I think I'm in another phase now than I hadn't been for the first for the first few years mm. So he goes on to talk about uh, the issue I suppose most rugby players of his age are, are concerned about and uh, he says I mean, it's, it's, it's quite interesting his approach to his health now so he said I'm 90% fine when it comes to concussion or potential dementia he said I'm 90% fine but there are a few one percenters that keep me in check a little bit of dizziness and the odd stutter and dropping things so he says part of this journey of moving to Dubai is to get a new lease of life to get sun on my face wake up warm so my joints aren't creaking I want to lose some wrinkles so my daughter stops saying I look so old Uh, it wasn't right for me and my family to join the group action because he was asked to join the group action and his his rationale was I don't want to be in that um, headspace no pun intended of, of negativity in effect he said I don't want to spend your whole day talking and thinking about deteriorating or forgetting your kids names etc how's that going to make you feel Instead, I sat down with my wife. I said, what can we do to get ahead of what's around the corner? Research says eat well, uh, drink less, train more, enjoy time with kids, get more oxygen to the brain, get your financial house in order so you can sleep well at night, have a daily purpose. I'd rather do that and approach things positively than sit around waiting and worrying. As soon as I put it out of sight and out of mind, the world opened up again. I gave myself a schedule, even if it was getting out of the house one day a week to play golf. I removed the negativity of worrying about dementia and I feel better for it. Those guys that uh, have, have, they have to do their thing, he said. Those guys have got to do their thing. Good on them. And I support them and I support what they're doing from afar, but I need to find my own way. And interestingly, though, he has gone to uh, a clinic out in Dubai and they treat traumatic brain injuries. He has booked himself in for an assessment which included uh, multiple scans and tests and now he's going to have a three-month uh, treatment therapy which will um, get oxygen to the brain so he's going to spend hours in a pressurised chamber to see if it will combat the impacts of his rugby career and he says I'm doing my uh, rehab so I'm I'm in the best possible place in 10 years because I don't know if you saw that Steve Thompson documentary the other week but certainly uh, they didn't go into detail on it but one of the cutaways uh, while he was just talking generally being interviewed over it was him with like an oxygen mask on in his house and was obviously so one of the treatments seems to be getting oxygen mm-hmm. to the brain so Dylan Hartley is doing something similar I, 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 and that's me speculating a touch but it sounds uh, similar to what we saw Steve Thompson doing and he does say with the brain scans it would be nice to have something to compare it with like when I was 18 versus uh, now but he's going to do this therapy program get oxygen to the brain and he said uh, come back to me in a few months if you want and we'll do an interview and we'll we'll see if there's results um, but look he tells the same war stories uh, 2011 I smashed into Keen Healy's knee in the Heineken Cup final I had a massive lump on my head we went in at half time with one hand on the trophy then I went into the toilets and this weird thing came over me I just started crying breaking down that along with the massive lump on my forehead was a clear sign of a knock I played the second half I can't remember it mm. that's your era Mm, quite yeah. literally yeah and and the start and there's another line which goes on about you know older hookers headbutting him as he as yeah. he uh, I mean which I remember that happening you know and you're just thinking God thank God I don't play in that position at the time I mean this was before they uh, engage in the scrum yeah. Yeah. if people didn't read it he said the other hooker who didn't name him wouldn't mm. make eye contact with him mm. and headbutt him mm. yeah but Hartley says well it scared the holy shit out of me yeah. so mm. when I got to mm. 
elder statesmen I started doing it to young lads too so like this vicious cycle obviously yeah. they don't engage in the same way now yeah but, yeah. Um, yeah look it's it's scary right um, and uh, there's a lot to go here still right in terms of what's going to come out of it and, and, and how, how much sport how much safer we can make the sport um, you know there has been a lot of progress made I mean, things like that just wouldn't, obviously, I mean, like, the, even the thought, even the, how crazy that feels now, you know, like, you you wonder five years from now when you look back at now, what will be the, the headbutt in the scrum moment? Mm-hmm. Um, but the game has to get safer all the time or or there won't be enough people playing it, right? He, he mentions the gladiatorial element to it um, and he's right, okay? Um, people do love that, but you just won't have the numbers playing, uh, rightly so, if the game doesn't continue to get safer as we go on. Mm. It's very interesting as well that he's talking about what can be done to, to help players and this, this marries both parts of the article, the, the the retirement aspect and the concussion and you know how players are physically after it and he's talking about creating a fund for retired players which seems like um, a very simple thing to do, make every player contribute 1% from the day they sign the first contract and it all goes into a big pot and I, I, off the top of my head I, I, I would say there's definitely a fund like that in the GA I, I think I'm aware of. Right. I'm sure soccer would have him. I'm kind of shocked that, you know, what that that clearly wasn't there in your day playing for Wasps even. But it seems like a very yeah simple thing to do. And he mentioned another one there where, like, you know, when you finish at a club, yeah. open up the physio once a week. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, uh, that would be a great thing, yeah. right? It really would. Um, he does, and he's had some good ideas. To be fair to him, he does. Um, he is. Yeah, yeah, he has. Yeah. Um, so there's loads of small things like that that can be done. Because he yeah. says as well, and this came up in the Steve Thompson uh, documentary, he's talking about brain scans. So he said, if you injure your knee um, and you're a marquee player international, they'll send you straight away for an MRI because uh, cost, he said, is the reason why every player isn't getting a head scan. That's an easy first step. And one of the conversations Steve Thompson was having with uh, a couple of his former teammates in the documentary was like, uh, the cost of brain yeah. scans is so exorbitant mm. that clubs are a little bit going on the cheap on this and, and maybe not everyone who could have done with one was getting one at all mm. times mm. It's also as well I know I think you guys had uh, Dr Michael Collins in yeah. there didn't you I went to that um, UPMC uh, concussion mm. conference in, in UCD at the time yeah. and there was myself and a couple of the other print lads there and I wouldn't be overly you know au fait with it but I have covered it off and on down the years Yeah, and some of the stuff he was saying at that conference just just took me absolutely by surprise, and because it, it just you made me think of it there because he's talking about the MRI and an injury, and Dr. Collins was saying like, you know, all our traditional thinking about concussion was go into a dark room, pull the curtains, don't do anything. He says, hold on, every other injury you have to rehab it, mm. you have to stress test mm. it a little bit, and he's saying that's what we're doing with the brain now, and it just made me think. I mean. I went to their first conference in Dublin in 2016 and the change in what they were saying then and now and he, he gave us a great line at one stage he said we started this in 09 or whatever and he said I would hate to see a tape of what we were saying in 09 yes. so it just shows the stratospheric yeah. graph in what they're doing and 09 is like you were at the height yeah, of your yeah, career yeah, like it's not yeah. that long ago either mm. Um, but all these ideas are very good that he's talking about. He was, he's, he's out in Pittsburgh and he's yeah. a like, world-renowned expert and treats thousands of people a year. And he was, because all we've had is doom and gloom on this issue. Yeah. And if you want to watch it on YouTube or you know any former players listening, he would give you a real sense of optimism that this is very treatable. Okay. Now, yeah. look, when it gets in, I asked him, what about the world when dementia starts? No yeah. one's treating that very well. He said, yeah. look, that's, that's trickier. But just those... 
concussion symptoms. Even something like um, the second one can be less serious if the first one is treated well, properly. Yeah. You know, which, which, like you say, is such a huge kind of... Oh, you kind of can breathe yeah. a little bit of relief. It's some potentially good news in this situation, like you know. So it's it's, it's it was an interesting one, and I don't know. It'd be interesting to watch. I'm going to watch it going forward. But Peter O'Reilly, it's actually a different type of story. He's talking about James Cronin, yeah. But he's he's covering um, the fact that we were stuck for a loose head um, cover in New Zealand. Yeah. But he refers to uh, a brain injury. So he he says. Uh, who was it that was missing from that test? Jeremy Lockman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he suffered from a brain injury. And I thought, I have never, like, normally that's HIA, mm. concussion, you know, and when I read it, it jumped out at me. I was thinking, that's mm. actually a very good way of, of reporting this. It does sound a lot more serious. It cuts through it, doesn't it? It, it? does cut through it, you know, and, 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 and it brings, like you mentioned it there, even about scans, like it brings the same ideas around, you know, hamstring injury, knee injury, like they're, they're scans you know, every straight away, every time. Yeah. Um, but I found that quite uh, jarring to, to read, you know, this guy's coming back after brain injury, which is what he's yeah. doing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But brain damage is right next door to it, really, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Hartley to play against. He's mouthy and like... Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> rub lads up the wrong like way. He, he's, uh, you know, he's clearly well-educated, well-read, smart guy, you know. Um, but when he played, he likes you to think he was probably the opposite right, right. Uh, he got in a lot of trouble <laughs> like I've played against them uh, for was I think he gouged two players in the same game and was banned for 22 weeks or nearly a full season yeah right. he um, he was a tough tough cookie to play against Jim and yeah. even even his, his persona he says I was Eddie Jones's messenger looking back maybe I would have done things a bit differently smiled a bit more it's liberating to be myself now yeah. and be honest start fresh and he was wasn't he he was pretty yeah, honest yeah. the whole way through yeah. that interview there you know it was a uh, Great interview. Yeah. yeah, very good. On um, James Cronin, just to briefly uh, mention it, Peter Riley's talking to him, and um, I guess they're talk- yeah, talking about like this mysterious departure from Munster. People who wonder well, why is he um, gone because he just t- turned thirty, and obviously he played a couple of times for Ireland under Joe Schmidt and one hundred and forty odd Munster caps at loose head. And as uh, we mentioned there, as own mentioned in New Zealand, we were pretty desperate for a, a loose head to the extent that Michael Bent was poached out of semi-retirement to play against New Zealand so uh, it seems really it was just down to money uh, that's the reason uh, Cronin went um, and Peter Riley says bewilderingly a cash-strapped club which is Munster has a reputation in the industry for overpaying their players so Cronin was in a big salary uh, he was still rated highly enough to play 17 games that final season when the club announced his departure Johan McGrand saying, said this is unfortunately uh, the unfortunate side of professional sport and it seemed, there, according to Cronin, there was an offer on the table for quite a long time. And then right approaching the deadline on March 31st, that offer was revoked. And he says, through my agent, I did say I was willing to take a pay cut, but there was no offer. So uh, Munster let him go, in effect. So he's now overplaying for Leicester. And uh, interestingly, he's um, making his sixth start in a row. I guess funny with rugby, everything's so interconnected, like... If we were just having a concussion conversation, we'd be looking at the Premiership and people would be saying, well, there are too many games, like Willie Stewart, the guy behind the study in Glasgow about the um, the likelihood of former players being 15 times more mm. likely to get motor mm. neuron disease. He's mm. saying, you've got to play less games. Mm. But you park that and then you're onto the chrono piece and he's like, yeah. my sixth start in a row, it's great, you know. <laughs> and you obviously were on that Premiership treadmill, um, yeah. so you know what it's like. But, yeah. uh, he's enjoying it. I mean... Six games in is different to 50 games in. We'll see how he's feeling then. But, like, mm. that'll be his lot now. He won't be rested as often. Yeah. 
Um, no, it's a big opportunity. Like, look, it's, he's he's taking the opportunity both sides. Like, he did a year in, I think, Beeritz as well, right? Yeah. So he's he certainly had to kind of, you know, dust himself off at thirty and and kind of keep the dream alive and and, and chase something. Uh, so fair play to him, right? I think this sport happens, right? Like this time, I think it happened. And that, the reason he's left could be anything from poor communication all the way up to, you know, Graham Roundtree being a very savvy scrum coach and and knowing what he has there he can get certain value out of it and deciding to, 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 to you know spend their money elsewhere mm. you know um, or Johan van Graan making the call making a bad call before he left it could be a million reasons um, but he's doing really well um, and you know it's an interesting you know Munster is, is like the, the premiership is you know it's a bit it's a bit more like European Cup every week you know it, it does They've done a very good job. Even, even it's funny even with the marketing of it. Even with the you know the clubs going bankrupt over there, like the games still, the games that are, are on or whatever still have a good intensity. Um, but the players aren't as good. Right, there's far more internationals playing in in in, uh, in the URC than there is in the Premiership. Um, but I saw him playing last week. He's had a great great few weeks, and and it's good news for Ireland. Right, one le- one way or another. Um, you know, we can't fly Michael Bent over when we're stuck, right? So, uh, Jeremy Lachlan had a good game last night um, as well. So, I suppose that's a good example of two loose heads playing instead of one, right? Um, so, it does work sometimes um, and it's good for him. Mm. Just uh, one other rugby piece. By the way, Onredden hasn't insisted we only talk about rugby in this paper, <laughs> so that we are going to uh, move off it in just one moment. But, curious for your thoughts, again, it links in with everything we've just been talking about. So, Neil Francis is talking about... Uh, rugby getting serious about dangerous tackles and he says yeah, he quotes um, how 28 states in America have the habitual offender laws it's an anti-violence strategy so three strikes and you're you're done in a big way he said rugby needs a three red cards and you're gone policy plus uh, 500,000 euro fines for uh, headhunters as he calls them a headhunter being in the, in the tackle so like he mentions several examples here uh, he says last <coughs> last week the shark centre uh, Rowan Jans van Ronsberg he got a Red for a dangerous high tackle on Ross Byrne, second tackle in as many minutes. What exactly was he trying to do? Uh, who thinks that his tackle was clumsy or reckless? Would anyone like to bid me and it wasn't in te- it wasn't intentional? He says, given the potential for serious and life changing injury, that's just no longer relevant. So intentional or not, no longer relevant. And he he mentions Van Rensburg, Sale Sharks player, given a red card for a dangerous high tackle on Harvey Skinner a few years back got three weeks was back in two after attending the World Rugby Coaching Intervention Programme uh, Tackling School prior to that 2019 he received another red card in a dangerous situation with uh, Springbok Scrum Half that was on the back of another red card he received in 2017 in South Africa and uh, Neil Francis mentions other repeat offenders talks about Bundiaki's red card which is his third since he got his first in 2019 he said the question has to be asked if it's not intentional how come the same guys are committing the same dangerous plays to the same part of the body? And he goes on to talk about really, uh, we have to think about fines, say 10,000 for the first red card for a head high tackle, then 250,000 for a second, 500,000 and a year ban for the third. And uh, he mentions as well, I'm sure you've noticed this own, or maybe it's been talked about in the dressing room, I don't know. Uh, he says, one week these players take someone's head off three weeks later they're back on the pitch doing it again the sanction it always seems is the bare minimum he says another aspect of foul play is that distinctly unpalatable 
one whereby there's the handshake after the event or as the perpetrator's walking off the field. In so many instances, the whole thing is a sham. The advice to the player always appears to be to instruct him to shake hands and inquire as to the victim's health. Is this done in the fellowship uh, of the good of the game or in good grace or is it done because if they apologise immediately it's seen as mitigation and their sentence is reduced there is no remorse or regret it's done purely to shorten the length of the sentence the victim always seems to shake his attacker's hand whether he's aware of why it's been proffered or not uh, he says if World Rugby is serious which they are not they should have a three red cards and you're gone policy and issue big fines to the headhunters so that's the gist of his article agree disagree I agree. I, I, whatever about the scale, I mm. think you know. Five, make it a million. People yeah, getting scale is a bit worrying, isn't it? People, <laughs> people getting paid are like while they're are after red cards. You know where they've really trying to hurt someone, or or mm. even even recklessly. Um, oh yeah, he talks about they're they're on full pay. Yeah, and they're uh, like that's yeah. that that was the line that probably got me across the, across the line in terms of the article and thing, and that doesn't really make much sense. Um, you know, and you're relying on you're relying on like you are trying to penalise teams anyway, right? You're you're saying, you know, without this guy, you won't be able to win as many games, and then you're hoping that the culture of the team will make sure that that person doesn't do it again. Um, but I think, you know, fines are not being paid, or I think there's definitely something in that. Like it, it would, it's also another step making the game safer, which is what everyone's trying to do anyway. Yeah. Um, and I totally get the bit about shaking hands. You know, whether it's you know whether it's whether the motivation is real or not. If the motivation, like sixty seconds before, was to take your head off, you know you shouldn't really have to shake that person's <laughs> hand. You know, yeah. um, it's uh, it is spoken about, right? It's it's um, it's you can get you out of jail, but it's yeah. I don't think it's uh, I don't think the, the the person receiving the handshake is really saying everything's fine either. Yes. You know? So Neil Francis makes the point that intent here is now irrelevant because mm. the damage ultimately done is the same. But as somebody who's like immersed in it and can have a, a, a great sense of uh, just how in control rugby players are or aren't on a pitch, can you tell which ones are intentional? Are they largely intentional? You can definitely, like you watch a World Cup final, you know, and there'll be seven penalties given by both teams. Seven. And that's why they'll be there because they've managed to, go from 25 you know when they were playing in the autumn and they're down to 7 each and there'll be no quarter given and the intensity will be massive and there'll be no cards because people can control their behaviours when it matters okay. um, therein is the answer and they're the best yeah. they're the best team so it's the coaches that create the best environments the best cultures that people know the implications if they get yellow card or red card or give penalties away they won't be playing the next week so it's basically I think what Neil Francis is actually saying is let's not trust coaches and cultures to drive these standards, you know, let's actually, you know, put them right through so every, every co- every group, you know, is driven to this. But I, de- it's I think player <coughs> behaviour is absolutely, you know, when you look at the best teams winning the trophies, it's all very, very controlled stuff from start to finish. Mm. Okay. Yeah, the scale of it, obviously. I mean, when he says go from ten thousand euros for the first red uh, to two hundred fifty, that's like when you go through the M fifty and forget to pay your your toll. <laughs> You'll also bank to pay twenty quid for ninety nine percent of the players. In, in, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of hold on. Where's yeah. the sense of perspective here? Like, and I, different. I know I'm being a yeah. bit flippant about it, but the whole three strikes and your your out thing as well. Just to take that analogy, I mean. If you get three driving tickets, is that it? Are you done for life? You know, I mean, and intent comes into this as well. Like you've spoken about Owen as well. Like proving intent 
is in any court of law or any sort of situation like that, it's next to impossible. And that's when you get into the grey areas of filth no, and, and, and stuff. No, and the burden of proof is it's tricky. But like if the same fellow is coming to you a third time going, I didn't mean that one either. I think and that, that's a good point. And I, I do take that. And um, I think one of the really frustrating things with rugby's disciplinary system is that you will read a guy gets X amount of weeks, but he gets two weeks off for contrition which the joke is he went in and said he's sorry and he bent his head like a, like a, a naughty schoolboy. Those hearings are bizarre. It, but this, like is, this is the point. And then at the end of it, he says they can follow rug football's yellow card system or else take it seriously. And that's, I think, is that, that's very end of the article. That's a good thing. You know, you're building up mm. one suspension, two suspension. Now, there is an element of that in rugby's disciplinary rules, but it's not quite that mm. simple. And that's a very simple way of doing it. If you have three red cards or two red cards in a season or over a period of 12 months get a well year. Then, yeah well that's what, well that's he said give me a year for yeah that'll make anyone stop and think yeah so there, there are elements in it which i agree but the very very punishing nature of you know the the scale of fines and yeah. and the three strikes and you're out is a little bit too heavy-handed for me maybe those hearings seem to take bizarre things into account. Yeah. Like you're practically saying, come here, he helps old ladies cross the street and kisses babies. Like you can't yeah. ban him for six weeks. It has to be three. Yeah, not that type of player. Yeah. How, what's the longest ban you were on the receiving end? Oh, I never, <laughs> I ever, I never got a red card. Oh, did, yeah, okay, oh, there you go. Yeah. Two yellows. Two yellows. In how many years? So, about 15, yeah. It's not bad. Both were shouting at a ref, I think. <laughs> okay, fair enough. The ultimate sin. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. So, uh, quite the week for the Republic of Ireland. Uh, numerous pieces, obviously, reflecting on World Cup qualification and the up for the Ra controversy. We have. Uh, David Kelly, for instance, in the Sunday Independent, does a, a great piece really charting that journey from the 2017 strike threat through to where they are now. And he talks to various people involved and, and, and hears from them, like <coughs> Stuart Gilhooley, who was um, external solicitor for the, the PFAI, and Stephen McGuinness, the PFAI general secretary, who you know was a big part of um, that period in 2017. And uh, just to jog your memory, uh, this had been coming for a few years and then it finally boiled over in advance of a game against Slovakia and they gave the now famous press conference at SIP2 headquarters, Liberty Hall, April 4th and that made international headlines. One quote from Onyo Gorman struck a chord, we've been getting changed in public toilets on the way to matches. And uh, David Kelly makes the point, it's easy to overlook the fact now that in the famous photograph outside Liberty Hall of the Irish players wearing respect jerseys, there were only 14 present. Others were either too afraid or too uncertain to show up. And we spoke to Emma Byrne, who you can see there front and centre of that picture, and she really brought the whole thing together. We had her at a roadshow at Vicar Street a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying she was getting phone calls from younger players or the parents of younger players who were being told you turn up to this thing, mm. that might be the end. You know, it might be so good. Yeah. Your prospects of playing for Ireland might be so good, you know. Yeah. So there were all sorts of shenanigans going on in the background. And and look, fast forward, what, five years? It's yeah. been an incredible turn, you know, state of progress when they were just given decent standards, full-time coaching, mm. 
Uh, even the the match day fee, which again, as, as is pointed out in this piece, is not about making money. It's just about not being grossly out of pocket. It's amazing how quick the upturn has been in their uh, fortunes. It's 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 great, and even you you touched on that of um, the phone calls that Emma Byrne said people were getting at the time. I I didn't know that a couple of players had actually turned up at a training session. Um, Dave mentions it in the piece, so they were sufficiently cowed, you know, to kind of. While their their teammates were doing this at Liberty Hall, they were turning up at the training session. Right. You know, so you can imagine just from a human point of view the horrible situation that people were put in. You can imagine the phone calls, the hand wringing, the worry and the stress. And I think, you know, it's funny because this this whole Liberty Hall experience has been touched on time and time again, and especially in recent weeks. And I was kind of surprised to see it. Um, in the paper today, given everything that's happened, but I think it's a great idea, and I think Dave has started it brilliantly with an extract from a letter to Ireland's international women's team by Rude Doctor, who was the FAI's high performance director at the time. And I think it's worth just reading that little little bit. And in it, he says, We would urge you to consider seriously, both individually and as a group, how your proposed actions could damage your club career, your international reputation as players, and your responsibilities to the many young people who look up to you as role models. Your current stance of making this into an issue about PFAI representation and the threat of making this a public issue will not yield any positive results, but will, in all likelihood, damage women's football and its future development. I mean, geez, you read that now five years down the line and put yourself in the shoes of those players. Well, if I was that. in my early 20s and read that from Absolutely. Rude Doctor, I, think, I would think, oh, we, better, we, I can't. we can't do this. No, 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 no. no. It's too big, Absolutely. too scary. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and you... you, you there's a bit of, you know, a bit of you will think they're trying to scare me, but there's a bit of you that will say, this this person's a performance director. Mm. You know, they know. Yes. You know, and, and you start to question, will I actually help? So e- even the ones who are brave enough have to have the clarity of, of knowledge to know that actually he's wrong. Mm. You know what I mean? We're going to actually do this and it's going to work. Yeah. And, and it's funny in teams, you know, throughout the week... Um, the interviews after the game, the match, it's 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 kind of like you know I wasn't up to speed with this 2017 incident as much, but to see that this happened is almost not surprising given the kind of people you've, you you that we've been listening to all mm. week. You know what I mean? It's almost like proper substance. Yes, um, and there's such a there's such a respect between. You know the captain then Emma Byrne, the players now. It's it's just they barely talk without ever referencing what's gone before them. You know what they're going on to next, and you watch. You know through all the other stuff we spoke about this morning, that's not that common actually. You know teams often talk about themselves, they talk about what they've done, their own coach right now, their teammates right now, but to see the breadth of, of and the, the kind of respect over multiple campaigns, different coaches, different captains, different players. Um, you know, it was amazing all week, I think. You know, and I think it, it shows they're, they are a special group of people. It was overshadowed, obviously, in some respects by the singing afterwards. So that's addressed in, in other pieces. Uh, Shane McGrath, for instance, in the Mail on Sunday, their chief sports writer, he said, uh, kindness and understanding informed public reaction to the playlist misstep by the Irish uh, women's team. He said, fair play. Now let's be willing to extend them to less sympathetic public transgressions in Irish sport. So basically he's talking here about the fact that uh, the general goodwill towards them definitely um, cushioned 
mm. the fallout from what happened in Hampden Park on Tuesday night. Uh, the decision to sing the song was wrong, uh, despite the misspelt insistences of many tricolour festoon Twitter accounts. He said, a failure to appreciate why singing a song that includes a line praising the IRA is in part attributable, attributable to boneheaded republicanism, but is to a large extent due to the passing of time. He says, uh, we are regularly told in analyses of the rise of Sinn Féin, there is a new generation now in their 20s and 30s for whom the troubles in the North are ancient history. It doesn't make the IRA any more palatable to civilised people, though, nor does it elevate the creative works of those uh, tuneless Mastoons, Mastodons, the wolf tones. Um, he says, Pow's side are the nation's darlings and with good reason. They're so impressive as sports stars and as people that nobody doubts they'll shake off the lingering effects of this unfortunate episode. They are public figures who are easy to admire and support and therefore easy to forgive as well. Uh, this week's uh, situation, it was conditioned by two factors, the popularity of the team and the nature of the transgression. The latter point is worth uh, reiterating, given the unsettling revisionism that means songs about the IRA are now deemed harmless. And uh, I thought um, Paul Rohn had just a really interesting uh, intro. I, I didn't know where it was going at first, and it kind of crystallised um, why people maybe had issue with the singing of the song. He said, in Vincent Brown's long defunct McGill magazine, the distinguished rugby writer John Reason used to write in compelling and glowing terms about the back row combination of Nigel Carr, Brian Spillane and Philip Matthews, which propelled Ireland to the 1985 Five Nations Championship. The Ireland back three of Nifahi, Diane Caldwell and Louise Quinn could easily be mentioned <coughs> in the same sentence after their imperious performance in the 1-0 defeat of Scotland. And then he goes on to say that Carr's career was ended by injury sustained in a £500 IRA bomb explosion on his way to training for the first ever Rugby World Cup in 1987, which killed a judge and his wife shouldn't go unmentioned but more on matters related to that subject later on. And then he talks at length about Fahey and Colwell and Quinn. But, um, yeah, they, uh, there's another piece. Women's IRA songs were offensive, but the remorse is mm. uh, sincere. That's Paul Rowan again. What did you make of it all, Brendan? Then you were watching on, I'm sure. Yeah, I was watching on, yeah. Um, I was interested by the, the manner in which it's been dealt with by, by the papers and uh, today as well. And the nature of what we do here before we come on air is we're skimming through a lot of stuff so I'm not I wouldn't say this for, for definite but I did not see a reference to the uh, up the ra chant in the Sunday in the sports section I haven't seen the main section maybe it's dealt with in there I don't know but I thought that was very interesting because you look at the Sunday Indo and we mentioned Dave Kelly's piece in Liberty Hall that's kind of the main piece to have one on Katie McCabe's home turf to be turned into a wetland because of a decision by the, the local council and we have a piece kind of on Amber Barrett and going into various aspects of, of you know, the upside of it as well. So the Sindo um, hasn't dwelt on it at all, maybe of the belief this is done, it's been dealt with, it's time to move on. Um, the other papers have, have taken a different approach on it and Paul's approach on it, I think, works very well in the Sunday Times one piece is the world in their hands, this is the good story, this is about that brilliant defensive trio and what they've done, and then on the far side, it deals exclusively with the IRA song. And, um, you know, I was thinking of this during the week, I think regardless of what happens with this story from now on, the fact of the matter is it will go into abeyance for a number of months, but when this team goes out to Australia and New Zealand next year, you're going to have a local reporter or somebody from whatever researching the team that comes to their town, whether it's Wellington or Adelaide or whatever, this is going to be put up in front of them again. So I think, unfortunately, 
this is going to run and run and run and it will come back to them down the line and that's just a point of their story now and you talked about how great their story is on and it is this is now part of it and they have to own it and it'll be interesting to see how that that um, evolves over a period of time because it is part of it and it will be brought up to a player sitting in a press conference with a, a bank of cameras in front of them. Yeah, probably. Um, so that's going to happen. Um, but I thought that the manner in which Vera Powell, the manager, dealt with it on Wednesday was, I think, I've always been seriously impressed with her in terms of the tone she, she takes on, on various matters, football and non-related matters. There's, there's no fluff there is no kind of deflection, there's no whataboutery. She came out and she said, this is wrong, I wasn't aware of it as a foreigner, I didn't realise it, but it was wrong, it shouldn't have happened. And I think that's the bottom line of all of it. It, it is wrong, it shouldn't have happened. And then it's, it's where you, which road you want to take yeah. down from it's, there. It's interesting, I think Vera Powell did the team such a service. Oh. Like she was eloquent beyond belief, because it's funny, Shane McGrath makes a, a, a very reasonable point, and it's an interesting observation, you know, he's saying this team are so bloody well liked. Yeah that forgiveness was forthcoming. Yeah. But he says, uh, cons- you know, he, he was saying like, what about uh, less sympathetic figures? Will they get the same response? And he was he was citing the Gordon Elliott um, story when people were, like, were, didn't want forgiveness at all mm. and wanted his career over, uh, which I think is, is a fair one to raise. But I guess one of the key differences in Gordon Elliott versus this situation is that I remember because I was in here and I was I was livid with the initial statement yeah. because it said, oh, you misunderstand the picture. Yeah. I was on a phone call and I sat on the horse accidentally. I did. I forgot I was on, you know, whereas Vera Pau came out and said, one, the issue is not that the video was leaked. The issue yeah. is it happened. Yeah. And two, it wouldn't have been all right if the video wasn't leaked either. And three, they weren't singing up the pause or whatever initial nonsense mm. was going out on Tuesday night. They were singing that. We did do it. And it's not acceptable. Like the the apology was almost so complete it's that a, even like the, if you had your pitchfork ready at the end of her yeah. apology, you'd be like, "Okay." It sort of disarmed yeah. me almost yeah. on every front there. Yeah, I don't, and I agree with you. I don't think like when I so my general reading the papers this morning, it, it was very forgiving. But I would mm. actually not give that credit to the to the media. Actually, I, I agree with you. I think the way they've dealt with it, so they've just qualified. You know, had a massive high, and now there's like through their own making uh, uh, an instant challenge. You know, the unexpected, unplanned for. Yeah. You know, and we all know a lot more about them now than we did before this challenge came up, right? Including uh, Vera Paul, who who I thought was amazing as well. Um, but they all just seem to have the same sort of values, or they seem very connected, and how they, how they've dealt with the issue all week. And I think when it does come up a year from now in, in New Zealand, I, I would have full faith that they'll mm. they'll probably deal very well with it like they did this week. It's been quite interesting. And this is where we'll veer into non-sporting territory where we're probably, I would feel we've less, ex- less expertise or, or less of a right to kind of hold forth in an environment like this. But I would say more than any recent example I can think of, this whole uh, situation has prompted like this wider debate about well, what does up the Rye even mean mm. for different generations? Like, where does this sit with us where, within talk of a united Ireland or even just uh, as, as, we, as we go forward? And I've heard various um, interpretations of what we saw in the dressing room. Like, I've definitely heard very strongly, and it's even in the papers uh, today, uh, the suggestion that, like, this is just total ignorance. Mm. This is like, this tune's a banger. And up the rise, it's just, it's mm. just, it's almost like a kin, it's like an umbrella term for up Ireland. Mm. 
Um, and so that, that's been put out there. They're too young. They don't remember. They're ignorant of history. And then others have said, well, it means something different to the younger mm. generation. The IRA means something different mm. to them. Um, I think and, it's and probably a bit between. of all of that, Joe. I mean, is, we're, yeah. we're talking about a big group of people whose experiences and backgrounds are all very different. So just listening to you say that, that, that's what comes to my mind. You have people from different, different families, different areas, different backgrounds, some from different countries. Yeah. And they are removed from the troubles and everything else, but some would be clued into the troubles. Some would have had the troubles clued into them or the political situation. And for others, it is a banger of a tune. Yeah. I think it's everything. Yeah. So maybe, maybe this is the media and us is in general trying to, trying to take this one lesson out of something that is just, it's a collection of stars, you know. Yeah. It's not one little planet that you can look at and go, that's the answer. It's everything, you yes. know. So, and, and that's why I think there's so many different views on it. You can have somebody saying, no, they're all just young footballers who are lead, leading closeted lives, and somebody saying, this is a reflection of where we are in modern Ireland. I mean, they are literally poles apart. Mm. But if you maybe sat down two of them over a cup of coffee, you might get both of those opinions. Well, it's funny, Kenny Cunningham was in here during the week, and uh, we were just talking generally about this whole situation. I was chatting to him about the apology, and he said, oh, look, about halfway through my career, because he was captain at quite a few clubs, he was like, I, I stopped apologising on behalf of the dressing room for anything, mm. because the dressing room does not think as one. And mm. that applies to this. I, I think you're right, there's probably some in that dressing room who are of a, yeah. a strong political persuasion, uh, reared in it, very aware of it, and when they sing Up the Ra, they mean it. It means something to yeah, them. Yeah, big time. And then there's those going along with the crowd and some in between. And it's uh, I, uh, this, it, this, this notion that, like, oh, for the young generation, it means something different. <clears throat> I read that in a few places during the week. I'm not sure I, I agree that that's a legitimate um, kind of uh, stance for them to take. Like, I think if you're singing up the RA, that means up the provisional IRA. I don't see how that can't refer to... The IRA. It, it, it does, but, but they haven't lived that experience. Even for us down in the sheltered southern part of the sure. island, and I think we're all of an age where we can remember the TV images on UTV, BBC, yeah. all the atrocities and everything. It means something different to us because we saw that. It was coming into our, our houses on an evening basis. They have never had that. Mm. I'm not saying that's right that they can have that, but you have to accept that different people have different contexts. And if you live something, something is, or, or if something is lived through your TV in real time, yeah. that's going to mean something different to somebody who wasn't born for another yeah, but I, 10 I, years after the Troubles. Yeah, no, totally. I think that's the truth and that's the reality. But I just question whether somebody can say, well, oh, well I, it, it means something different to me because I'm choosing for it. To, I'm going to wipe... It means, I'm, I'm, it I'm gonna means wipe. they're not listening to it. Like, even the people... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you know, some people mightn't feel strongly about it because of what you said, but mm. there are people now who are listening about it, who do care about it. And yeah... You go from. It's also interesting that you know you could be you could be saying to yourselves, you could be very. Hum- I'm not saying this is the case in this situation, sure. but you know when you go from being kind of get get like going from not in the limelight to in the limelight, right? You've got people who are instantly aware of themselves and how important they are, and you've people who never really fully. There's they're so they've driven humility their whole lives that they never actually realise that someone A is going to actually care that much about what I say yes. that many people are going to actually listen to me and I think there's definitely an element of that this week where you've, you you have both the song shouldn't be said but B the width that that, that it was transmitted yes. to in the end was not something that was it was aware you Tommy know? Martin had a piece during the week about how the age of innocence is over for this team now. Yeah. they've crossed a the line into yeah. 
But I think it happens in individuals. Like I, I, I know, <laughs> you know, people sometimes, you know, and you, 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 they're just so down to earth and humble, and they, they just do not understand the reach they'll yes. they have when they say something. And you're mm-hmm. thinking, oh God, like that's going to hit everywhere in every home, yeah. you know. And, and it's great to just be in yourself, but you know. Um, it's it's a, no, it's, it's an true. awareness that uh, not everyone has. I know for sure, and I think one of the things everybody agreed on is that in that moment of celebration in that dressing room, the the notion that they were they would have wanted to cause offence to yeah. anybody. I don't think anybody has that yeah. interpretation of events. Yeah. You know that they were thinking of victims yeah. of IRA atrocities yeah. in the past. You know, and it's you know it's a shame that it is this team. I mean, they've been so open and so engaging, and again, going forward to the World Cup and everything. I hope it doesn't change how they... Might do. I think it will, but I, I, I hope... I, is willing to go on Sky, News, Sky Sports News as quickly, you know. There'll, well, there'll be a, there'll be a yeah. standoffishness, potentially. But, I mean, and that's, yeah. uh, you know, it, it'd be a shame if yeah. it was, because their stories are so good, and it's the engagement. It's, it's like, you know, you were talking about, I don't think they realise, in a way, they, they talk about being, you know, doing this for girls and young boys in Ireland and everything but at the same time I think it's what you're talking about with mm. humility that they don't maybe understand that this is the scope for it. and I just hope they just continue to engage publicly in, a, in some shape or form sure, yeah. in the way they have up to now you know yeah. I will, I'll finish on this yeah. point just, just I, when I kind of took away the credit from the media you know actually being like moving on and being positive right that's probably not fair right there's two sides to it the players have to and the coach have to come out and deal with the problem they've caused, which I think they've done. And I do think the media has actually played their part. There's many times, both watching World Cups and being in them, where I've I've been reading our media thinking, would they not just take a leaf out of someone else's book where you'll you'll notice in some World Cups where a a, a national media has literally just backed their team a little bit, you know? And there is room for it. There is place for it. If you want great things to happen, sometimes you kind of have to be, okay, let's go with the positive here. And I think um, there's been a bit, reading the paper today, they certainly, I think the players did a great job responding to, to the, to the, to their mistake during the week and I think in fairness to the media they they have moved on the country wanted them to move on I think yeah, and I, I think, think they've so. reflected that because uh, uh, like it has been such an interesting week for all the conversation happening did you see Patrick Keelty pop up on your social no. media f- uh, feed at all so he was speaking at some conference uh, relatively recently I think before this maybe had happened and Patrick Keelty's father, Jack, I don't know if you know, was murdered by loyalist paramilitaries when he was 44 and, and Patrick Keelty was 16. And he was making all these really interesting points. I mean, further to what you were saying, Brendan, he was saying, like, it's easy to sit in a Dublin pub and say, oh, the British government don't care about the North. When the truth is, does the Dublin pub care about the North all that much either? But it was the, the line which went viral. Again, he said this before uh, Tuesday or night. He said, the quote is... Uh, ghosts of the past are easy to honour he said it's way easier to sing a rebel song about a united Ireland than decide not to sing it in order to maybe have one Mm. which was a hell of a line yeah you you can sing it if you want but maybe we're better off not singing it you know I thought it was uh, Mm. a great way of putting it there was a line in uh, James Ducker piece so there's lots of um, build up to Man City against Liverpool lots of people listen to this on podcast on a Monday so they'll know the result by now but uh, there was you just took a screen grab on in our little WhatsApp group this morning of a, a quote from Pep Guardiola around the Liverpool City game yeah. last year and you just said I love this yeah so he says um, it was goalless at half time of the match right so and the game was on in Anfield I think was it it was goalless at half time yeah 
So they needed to win, right? Um, and for me, this quote, I'll, I'll talk through why afterwards, but he said, yeah. I know guys in this stadium, especially in this one, the guys who want the ball and the guys who don't want the ball. I will take note, eh? The strategies, the plan, follow them, convinced. Um, and for me, like this is, this is kind of what I what I. It kind of matches up with what my experience would be around high performance. Um, there's nothing there about, you know, we're away from home. We need to believe. We've we've we've. It's a different message, you know. He's 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 got internal competition with his squad, which he's feeding off. He's actually saying to them, some of you in this room you know would step up but stepping up is a different term right stepping up is is what does that mean mm-hmm. you know stepping up could mean to you I'm going to run around and dive into everybody and you get a red card yeah. like but to give it a real meaning I just want you to want the ball right I think um, so it's a clear message and it also shows you know he's saying as well like I'm the boss I'll take note mm-hmm. you know there's a game coming next week we're probably going to be playing in a final soon all these things the players know in the background and to actually keep delivering for this team all he's watching now is you know am I showing for the ball do I still want the ball there's a chilling aspect to heading there for the second half and knowing that Pep is taking note of who wants the ball yeah but but I think it's also a confidence (coughs) in him right he hasn't if you think about it he's basically saying this is what's going to win us the game yes right Um, it takes the pressure off them in a sense and if you do what I've asked you to do then that's all you can do yeah Um, and I find it like you know you know you kind of flip on a page and there's a bit about Mbappe you know, and you've got Galtier coaching him, and you know uh, he's trying to get uh, Neymar sold last summer. You know, and I, I just like the gap between what would appear in those two managers is mm. just astronomical, right? Or, um, you know, we talked about Jacka. We, we we kind of yeah, yeah. WhatsApped a bit this morning, or and like that's fascinating as well. You go from a player who's who's shouting up at a group of fans, you know, F you. totally finished. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, are you seeing him? I remember um, watching him play for Switzerland and like calling my kids and my wife. Like, I was like, what are you? I'm like, watch this guy running around. Like, look how, look, look how good he is, and you know, um, and how much he wanted to win. And then you, you, you watch him go. My, my father-in-law's an Arsenal fan and my wife. So he comes. You go. We go back, and it's like a different player at that time. And it's, mm. it's, <coughs> I'm fascinated by how how you know Arteta has. has taking this player who's out of favour doesn't like it and he's now charging around you know um, you know desperately wanting to win and and, and the, the the bit that really caught me with the Chaka piece was that he uh, you know he said the reason he, the reason he ended up in front of the crowd shouting at them you know was because he wanted to win so badly that he was dealing with it all the wrong way mm-hmm. and like if the players, if the if the fans knew that, they'd never want someone like that to leave. Well, he did scream "f you" at yes. them. Yes, so you know <laughs> he did. But but my point is, That's it's, with it the wrong way. it's just it's like way. if you were ever going to be a manager of a team, yeah. you know, you need those players who you need to kind of find a way to get them to be, you know, good culture drivers. But trying to give someone that level of desire to win is much harder. You know, yes. so he has the wrong ingredients. So you just need to shape them yeah and I thought like across the piece today like the there was like you know you've got Klopp who's probably not getting the most out of Liverpool at the moment you had Guardiola who obviously is you know you'd, you'd um, you'd the Mbappe situation or Harry Kane is flying along you know um it's just amazing how different managers are getting different different amounts out of each player at the moment or each team it's really moment. interesting that Guardiola quote 37 words 
you've, what, 10, 15 minutes in a dressing room, and yet I always remember Anthony Daly talking about sitting down with Joe Schmidt and showing him his notes. Do you remember this story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, here's my notes of what I'm going to talk to at half time. There was a fool's cap nearly full of everything the guys need to remember, and Joe said, three points. Three points. I think he had need. ten key messages. Something like that. Yeah. You know, I, I over-egged the pudding a little bit there, of course. But no, but he had, he had ten key... Like, yeah, but, but, but Joe said... Make it three. Make it three. Do you know what I mean? And that sense of clarity. I mean, you must have seen coaches have done it brilliantly and done it terribly throughout your career. Yeah, and you only... Like, the, the name thing, names. <laughs> the thing is, you, you when you name ten things, right, everyone hears two or three. Yeah. And then, you know, if you were to ask everybody coming out, what's the one thing you, you, you're going to work on? Are you going to... They'll all say something different because you've given everyone something different. Mm. Um, whereas if you if you stick to one or two, then normally the message is aligned, and then then you get everyone doing the same thing. You know, um, does the message have to change over years or over a season? Like if it's the, if it's a coach saying the same one or two things for a year, does everyone get sick though? It depends. You know, um, it depends if it's working. No, yes, I mean you okay. watch Sean Edwards with France. You know, you think he's been saying the same thing for twenty years now. You know, finally other teams are doing what he's doing. Um, it's just skill. Like some of the coaches, just just able to read that room, you know. And that Pep Guardiola coat was was uh, was perfect. I think you know. Yeah, uh, Jack. By the way, very interesting. You've alluded to the interview. It's it's mm. basically with Rob Draper about how he's gone from fu to the fans to now. He's, he's quite emotional because they have a new song for him in the last couple of weeks, and he's been brilliant. And he's kind of amazed that it's turned around. I think we're all a bit amazed the extent yeah. that it's turned around because even he said his dad, who's uh, not a quitter told him after that match it's time to leave in October 2019 and uh, he talks at length about his father who was um, in jail for three and a half years in former Yugoslavia protesting for the rights of ethnic Albanians in Kosovo in the late 80s and he was uh, stuck in a cell and he was in a cell for 23 hours and 50 minutes a day with four other people and amazingly as well his parents met each other a week before he went to prison when they were 18, 19 and his mother waited for his father for three and a half years and it was 1990 when he was released and they got the hell out of there and got to Switzerland and that's why he's playing for Switzerland now so kind of an amazing backstory so he does make the point when my dad said it's time to leave like, well, my dad is not a quitter yeah. so maybe I should get out of here but uh, he's there now and, and doing brilliantly is kind of this, un- this, this, is, this is in one way an even better interview than the Dylan Hartley one which we all loved in the sense that it's a current player do you know what I mean? And, and a footballer, and, and a footballer Premier open, League, yeah. top of the tree, mm. and it's it's all predicated on the fact it's it's nearly three years or more or less three years since that day against Crystal Palace, when 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 he hit a, the the real low with Arsenal, um, and then you know having a backstory like that with his dad uh, doesn't hurt either, and it's it's remarkable because you hear guys around the soccer beat in the UK and even here and trying to get access to these guys there's all these stories there to be told as well and you just never really hear about you might see them on Premier League review or preview or yeah 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 whatever, and, and it's know? like this anodyne quote here and there yeah, do you know yeah. I thought it was interesting as well it's like it's funny like we're talking about the, the complicated politics of Ireland there every country's got oh, their own I, stuff going on that so confused me actually I had to read it like three times yeah is he from A, B or C and where's the dad from and where did they end up and but it's interesting so he He's, he's 106 caps for Switzerland yeah. and when there was talk of him being potentially made captain a while back the former Liverpool player and uh, Swiss international uh, Stefan Henshaw said he shouldn't be in contention to be Switzerland captain yeah. because he doesn't represent Switzerland so I mean crazy all of this stuff Isn't going it? on you know, you know and a, a very multicultural country you know with the three you know French, German, Italian mm. even before you have the influx of 
of immigrants into it. Like, you know, how many languages do they speak there? So, you know, it goes back to that, you know, what is identity anyway? And especially in a country with that, you know, influx of, of different uh, different influences, you know? Yeah. And Stefan Encho has been in multicultural dressing rooms all his life. Yeah, you know. Oh, no, he doesn't represent us. Yeah, it's, so, a, it's uh, terrible, terrible not, quote, isn't not it? great. Yeah, I hadn't realised that that no, was... I didn't. I'd never heard that before. Part of the debate around Jack. Yeah, so yeah. He's going to be a guitar anyway, so we'll see him again. Um, we are pretty much out of time, unless there's any uh, final point anyone wants to make. Sambo... Mc- Sambo is good, yeah. But, uh, it's a, an extract from his book, yes, isn't it? Yes, yeah. He just talks about, um, well, I guess it, it's funny, like the North has kind of been a theme all week. Um, this, he's got a new book out and there's an extract from it, page 19 of the Sunday Independent. And he's been an all-star winning hurler for Antrim and gone into management now. And his, his new book is out and he just talks about coming home from Oma one night from a, a dinner dance. And he was stopped in the middle of nowhere by a man with his face painted black. 1am, they're the only two on this country road and rolls down window and he just says license gives him the license and the guy walks around to the back of the car and five minutes go by ten minutes go by half an hour goes by he says I couldn't see him or hear him you don't sit in a situation like that for long without your mind starting to play games with you this is obviously during the height of the troubles I should Mm -hmm. say and uh, there were no other cars it was just me and him strange fear built up inside me tried to stay calm but I was sweating imagining all sorts of scenarios I knew if I attempted to drive on he would shoot me or even if he didn't, there could be a road block mounted further up the road. Took everything inside me not to give way to the rising panic. And so it was 3am, just shy of two hours, when he said, there's your licence, and lets him drive on. And Kind of frightening ordeal, as you can imagine. And he just talks about how routinely, if you were stopped and you had hurls in the back of the car, the soldiers would break them. And he said, when I was growing up, you could never carry hurls. A priest used to come around on a Friday night and gather them up as he didn't want to make us targets coming home from training or matches. And talks about his oldest uh, his eldest son who was three or four when he went to visit my wife's family there was a band marching they began spitting at him because he had GEA gear on uh, so I mean we don't down here understand like we try to understand yeah. and we, we talk about the IRA there and we talk about all aspects of it and, and the lived experience is just so well, the lived experience I'm just looking at it there um, the chronology of the troubles so this is um he was picked in the '91 All Stars team, so he's doing the, the you know the winter dinner dance schedule going around. Yeah, because there aren't many Ulster hurlers. Yeah, Ulsters, exactly. Yeah. So I'm tr- I'm trying to get a timeline on it. So maybe the end of 1991, and just looking at the chronology, of the troubles here, and you know uh, where are we? 14th of November, two Catholic civilians and one Protestant civilian killed as they're travelling home from work by the UVF. And that feeds into what he's saying. I was sitting there for almost two hours trying to stay calm but sweating and imagining all sorts of scenarios. So this is the stuff that's on the news. Yeah. This is, this is stuff that they're experiencing all around them. Imagine sitting in that car in the middle of nowhere up a mountain for two hours. Because I think if we're stopped in that scenario, we kind of think, well, nothing too bad can happen here, really, yeah. in the real world. But for him, it was distinctly it's, possible. And he, ta- he talks about a, a, a delivery man delivering bread to the yeah. cafe next yeah. door to where he worked just he being was, shot at 7 in the morning he was working in Guinness one morning at 7 and he heard this bang which he knew was a gunshot and looked around to see what, had happening, what was happening the Mother's Pride bakery yard next to where I worked had only a steel partition between us the killing had taken place about 20 yards from where I was and the victim was a bread delivery man yeah. like it's you know now I, I don't know who committed that um, no murder but again that's why you know Pat, to Patrick Kilty's point like people have like said openly on the radio this week, well they just they just mm. sang it because it was the banger of a tune. Yeah, and then 
if you're a victim and you're it all goes back to Vera, like, Vera Powell's on. point it was wrong full stop mm. you know shouldn't have happened mm. um, gents thank you so much that was great Brendan O'Brien of the Irish Examiner Owen Redden uh, thank you very much for coming to the studio come again in the next uh, six months or a year drop in and do it <laughs> For no sure. comedy <laughs> says. <yeah. laughs> <laughs> All right, for sure. For sure. The Back Sunday next week. papers on off the ball. <laughs>